see the fatal gunshot in 10 seconds. Now, normally we broadcast this show live. But in the spirit of the Easter holiday, we decided to pre-record a show, which we did yesterday. And at the end of our show, the videotape was released from the Grand Rapids Police Department showing the death of Patrick Layoya, a 26-year-old, uh, at the hands of a police officer whose name is yet not known to the public. And I think you're going to enjoy the program. It'll come after this, but Karen and I thought it would be important to talk to you, the community, and amongst ourselves because we don't need any more fire and glass and, and death. So you saw that, Karen. Uh, the police officer pulled the young man over. The plates didn't fit the car. The young man gets out of the car. He does not listen to the order from the police officer to get back in the car. The officer asks him if he speaks English. He says he does, and then he runs off. The officer chases him, tackles him. They fight, wrestle for about a minute and a half, struggling with the officer's taser. The officer tells him at least three times to let go of the taser. He does not. The officer shoots him in the back of the head. And is this, in your opinion, justified? Is this execution? Because it's the whole rainbow again in this country. And, you know, Charlie, sadly, the only thing that ever changes about these situations are the names and the dates. Um, we continue to see situations that emerge like this for myriad reasons and contributing factors um, with the unfortunate outcome of there being uh, someone, a civilian, uh, a resident, uh, a black man that's ha that has died at the hands uh, of a police officer. Um, but there's also so many human uh, elements to the situation that, you know, emotion may prevent us from looking at. I think there were at least two opportunities to change the outcome uh, of this unjustifiable situation. And, and I'm not looking at this from a legal situation, but I, I, I'm hard pressed to say that this officer was justified in shooting him in the back of the head. Um, the first was when he asked several times for um, the young man to get back in the car. That was the first opportunity to circumvent uh, the situation and, and the young man refused. The other was when he ran away. Uh, rather than the officer chasing him, you know, why didn't he call for backup or wait? I cannot understand or think that a misaligned plate is that serious of a crime um, where you have to catch and capture them at that moment. I, I mean, I would, you know, thought that maybe he could call for backup and have some type of support or assistance. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of adrenaline, there's a lot of fear, there's a lot of things going on that only we can guess about because we're not there. Um, but at the end of the day, someone's son, possibly someone's brother, husband, father, friend uh, is now deceased as a result. Yeah, and I'll say that I, execution, I can't say that. Number one, yes, it was just a plate. So you the motorist, it's just a plate. There's no reason to run away. Two, 
when somebody is trying to take your weapon, let's look at it from the cop for a second. You're trying to take a taser. If the guy gets the taser, he can tase you, incapacitate you, and take your firearm, which leaves you out. Number two, did he execute him? I don't know about you out there, but I come from a place where I, I've had my ass beat a couple times in life by cops, and I've been in the back of squad cars as a guest of cops on many occasions. When you're wrestling a man for 90 seconds, a minute and a half, that that is... Right, Mark? You used to wrestle. It's a long time. It's excruciating. Yeah. I mean, you... So, if he's not letting go of the, the taser and you pull your gun, there's you, you don't have anything but adrenaline going. You're not aiming anywhere. I. It's Again, it's another one of those, where do we go in America? Here's what I'll say on the other side. For at least a decade, we've been talking about police de-escalating situations that grow into this. We've been talking about it. We've been talking about training. So two things here. One's what you say, Karen. You've got his car, his buddy's in the car. You know who he is. Mm -hmm. You're going to be able to get him. You can de-escalate it. Why even make stops like this? I mean, what, what predicated it? Mm -hmm. There's a long history in, in uh, Grand Rapids mm -hmm. and the minority community with the police, right? Number one. Number two, Grand Rapids is not a broke city. Right. Why do you have police officers? One to a cruiser. It's, mm -hmm. da it's dangerous for everybody. It's dangerous for the officers. It's especially dangerous for Patrick. He's gone. Yep. So we keep talking. We keep marching. We keep accusing each other. And real life stuff is not getting done. That's for sure, Charlie. You're absolutely right. But um, this officer will probably not be charged. I mean, officers in the past have not been. Um, so I don't know that when people are marching and asking for reform, what is it that they're actually looking for? We've talked about training. We've talked about people that hold certain positions having to make more timely, more thoughtful, more decisive um, decisions in a split second, maybe than the average person, pilots, police officers, doctors, um, you know, those those positions are to me set out for people who are cut out for those positions, which means that they're not emotional positions. They're not irrational positions or positions for rational decisions. Um, and you're absolutely right. How difficult would it have been for this officer to find this guy? You know, he had his car. He had his friend. Uh, I'm sure there are not that many black people in Grand Rapids, so he could have, you know, it, it wouldn't have been that difficult to find. But those are the thoughts that you make when you have the time and not the pressure. You know, is this guy feeding into, you know, I'm not going to be outdone, you know, by a resident uh, because I'm a police officer and I've got to prove, you know, that uh, there's, there's, there's strength behind the badge. I mean, we, we have no idea what goes on um, in the minds and the hearts when these situations are unfolding. But I will say that at some point, we've got to reevaluate how these situations are, are, are approached, how they're handled. Um, it's not protocol. It's not process. It's not legislation. I mean, this is. I was. This, I was just. I was just dropping my child off at school, and we we're talking about it. And I said, "This is where you, these are where your hands go mm -hmm. when a police officer pulls you over. You don't get out of the car. You get out of the car. You're required to get out of the car. That's that's the law when they tell you to. You get back in the car. You're required to do it. So, 
again. But a lot of people don't know. And Charlie, you know, I, I used to spend a lot of time talking to law enforcement, um, sharing what that process was like. When you get pulled over, what do you do? Do you crack the window? Do you illuminate the inside of the vehicle if it's dark? Do you place both hands on the steering wheel so they're visible? Do you advise them when you're, you know, there's a lot of tension on both sides. So I think that educating the public uh, is also important, but we can't ignore the racial components of this either, Charlie. You know, they, and and that's always something that comes to the forefront. Um, you know, people America views black men as threatening, as intimidating. Um, this what? officer may have never been around, around a black well, guy I, ever in his you life. Know, so. I don't know. I, I it's a stretch because again, yeah. again. Well, I say this. Obviously, we're going to go to race because there's a history between police and black exactly. people. But I look at the video clearly again. You're asked to comply with a lawful order. You didn't do it. You grabbed the man's taser and you were repeatedly told to let it go. What is that? There's no and excuse that, for that. that is not withstanding, Charlie. But what I'm saying is, is that because there is a black man and a white officer involved, yeah. all those, then race becomes part of it. it that does. You forget, I predicated this whole conversation by saying there was an opportunity twice to circumvent the situation. That's, the was that. And so that's I'm not, why I'm, I'm I not know. That I, out, of the, out, of the, out of the equation. I'm just trying to keep it easy here. I don't want to argue about it. I think that's what, that's why we felt we need to come on and say a few things. So we're not far apart. You know what I mean? And how we think when you really look at it, we, we agree about all this, but here's where I'll take it. No, we'll, we'll leave you with the, with the program. I'm quite sure on this program over the last few years, I've mentioned it, it's, it's been a thing of mine. I want to call to memory uh, a man named Dietrich Driver who was shot and killed on his own couch in September of 2018 when the police exercised a search warrant looking for a person of interest in the murder of a baby, a five-year-old, Isabella Coleman. Thinking the woman is sleeping upstairs, they want to arrest her. They throw a flashbang grenade into the house. The lead commando on the SWAT team fires his weapon 15 times on a man not even related to any of this and kills him in his own home. Chief James Craig at the time comes out and says, well, you level a, he was leveling a weapon at the officers, which is difficult to believe when a grenade goes through your window. Yeah. And it's possible. He says, I don't know if they were because the body camera was murky. You can't tell. But there was definitely a pistol on the floor. A week later, the chief comes to the board of commissioners and says, no, I, I got to look at the video and it, it's clear. Oh, it's clear he was leveling a, a pistol. Was he given orders? In Detroit, you must know, crews work. They break into homes wearing police uniforms. The amount of time you come through the door after a, a, a flashbang grenade and you're sitting there and you're leveling. I don't know. Possibly. Michigan State Police investigated this, they tell us, and the, the lead commando was exonerated. And yet we've never seen anything. For three years, I've been asking. Three, almost four now. Where's the video? Where's the sealed warrant? Where's the testimony? I got some stuff. And here's what I know. In the end, the woman was questioned and let go. And nobody's been arrested for this child's murder. And a man is dead. And it should never work out that a man in his own home who did nothing, whether he has a pistol in his home, 
should be dead. And sir, if you're running for governor, this just came back. State police, you said you're going to do right by Grand Rapids. You haven't done right by Mr. Driver. And we are going to stay on that. And in everybody's, man, every, every officer out there, be safe. God bless you. Every person in the community, be blessed. And be careful. And this is the rest of the show. We hope you enjoy it. Happy Easter. Mark! Mark! Yes, my liege. I bring you, Mark, on this Easter holiday, the 20 commandments. Yes, the 20 commandments. <laughs> Wait a minute. I, I've only got 10 commandments here. I, <laughs> I didn't have time. I got all caught up in the COVID thing, Mark. It's been so busy, you know. I'm trying to get things up and moving again. No one's coming to church. I hear no psalms, no praising of my name. I can't even get airtime. I called Bezos. Yeah? He won't put me on the air anymore. Can you believe that? What? The guy thinks he's God. <laughs> no Ten Commandments. No Chuck Heston. Hey, Chuck, bring me that beer. <laughs> Chuck's up here. No Passion of the Christ, Mark. I mean, they're running Schitt's Creek reruns and no Ugh. Easter programming. You damn it. No. No. So I'll just be hanging around this weekend. My most precious Mark. Yes, my liege. I can see your house from here. Just in breaking news. Dub or bullshit. Dub or bullshit. No bullshit. Welcome in. Happy holiday. On today's program, dead men still voting in Michigan. Rednecks released. No kidnapping plot going anywhere. Andy Arena, the former head of terrorism operations for the FBI will join us quickly. Inflation, what the fuck? All of that and more on today's truncated version of the No Bullshit News Hour. What's going on, Detroit Red? What up, though? How's business downtown at the De uh, American Coney Island? Oh, them Coney's is going out the door. I'm pimping hot dogs like never before. <laughs> you, and you eat them like never. Every mistake that's made, Red's eating it. <laughs> Pretty much so. You can guarantee I'm going to mess up at least two tables a day. Red go up there and go, two with everything, two? Yeah. Extra onion? He does extra onion just so he has to eat them. He yeah. orders it the way he wants it. They're that good. <laughs> that good. There's a reason they're in the white bag. 
doesn't look like a like a theft. It doesn't look like a pile of garbage. Lafayette puts theirs in brown bags. Ugh. But they're not the original. No. They're not proprietary sausage like American Coney Island is. The same recipe for the chili for over 100 years. The dogs, which are actually sausages, made specifically for American Coney Island. The cleanest joint in Detroit with the greatest staff, yours truly, and that truly. Hey, come on down, eat with me. Let me tell you some jokes and serve you some hot dogs. Yeah, it's, you know. Good people down there, man. Sure is. Yeah, the guy's working working the dogs, too. AmericanConeyIsland.com. Get a Coney kit delivered to your door anywhere in the United States. And also, ADR. When you need something done right, on time and on budget, you call ADR, your fix-it specialist. You know about it now because everybody listens to this program. Everybody knows. Make the call. It's the summertime now. I mean, spring. Now you're time to get the roof fixed. Time to get the apartment building in shape. Now's the time. Can't find the staff. You can't find the construction people. You can't find the deconstruction people. You can't find the IT people. That's Barry Ellen Tuck at 248-318-9424. 248-318-9424. And of course, nice. You're getting good at this, Mark. Long way to go. The market. I don't know what's going on. Look at this here. The power of the dollar is down. Inflation at its highest since Jimmy Carter. And yet, at the same time, the value of the ruble is up from pre-war levels. It makes no sense. It, it, well, you know what you do if you can't make sense. Go buy some rubles? <laughs> no. You call Luke Nowacki. He'll give you his opinion on rubles, dollars, gas futures, oil futures, grain futures. My future? Exactly. <laughs> That's what it comes down to. Your future. Don't guess with it. You call Luke Nowacki at Royal Alliance Associate Inc. at 248-663-4748. Luke Nowacki, 248-663-4748. And of course, you got a house? You're standing in line. Everybody wants that house. You must have your financing together. I recommend this guy. Hi, I'm David Hall from Hall Financial. Choosing between a 15 or 30 year mortgage can be difficult, which is why we offer the Modern Mortgage, a flexible term that's customized for you. 866-CALL-HALL or chat with us online at callhallfirst.com. And now what we've all been waiting for, (laughs) your news. If you want to live forever, you can either get with God or you can register to vote in Michigan, a veritable valley of the immortal. Consider William Bradley Sr., the 118-year-old Detroit auto worker who voted by absentee ballot back in 2020. He became our most famous voter in the most infamous election because Mr. Bradley is still dead. He's been dead since before Michael Jackson was moonwalking. He was dead while Van Halen was on the jump tour. (laughs) But Mr. Bradley voted anyway. His vote from the grave was dismissed as a clerical error back in 2020 by the office of Jocelyn Benson, Michigan Secretary of State, and a Democrat. As it turns out, William Bradley's son, William Bradley Jr., was mistakenly sent his dead father's absentee ballot application. The son, thinking he was voting for himself, was actually voting as his father, and so technically, the son never voted. Now, Bradley Jr. was told by election officials in 2020 that it was a mere clerical error that had since been corrected. When you saw this first happen, 
What was your, you know, in the news coming out and all these people? What I, was your I, I, I haven't, I haven't found nothing on the news. Nothing. Only way I found about it was through phone calls. Okay. I got a phone call from Guy Gordon, News 4, Channel 7. He got his own radio show. Okay. And I got a call from the guy, a couple of couple of guys from New York and one guy from the New York Times. He gave me them the information out to the city clerk, clerk building the call. So okay. I called on that. She gave, she told me everything was okay. She said, "Don't worry about it because we go by the we go by your signature and your birth date of birth." So did did she ever address or or answer? That was it. he was she, still on the road in no, the first she, place? No, it, it was just that she told me everything was all right and she didn't want to go no further. She said that was it. But did they explain to you that you technically didn't get your vote, that it went under your date? No, they didn't tell me none of that. Yes, and that's what we was, was, was No, I, I, my, my vote should be valid because that's the only application I sent in. I didn't never send my dad's in. Yeah, you never sent your dad's in, no. but somewhere down there in the mix, they registered your vote under your dad, and that's how all the hoopla got started about your dad voting. Okay. So knowing that they did that, and that's how it went, how do you feel uh, about basically your dad ended up getting your vote? Even though you didn't vote for him, they registered your vote under him, and mm. it looks like you didn't vote. Oh, man. That's messed up. I mean, I can't do nothing about that because that was a te technical error. I mean, you know, like somebody right. who was reading that read the wrong name, read the wrong, read the right name and made the wrong vote. Entry. Right, you know, entry. So even though you voted, you didn't get your vote because somebody down there put it under your dad. Okay. And if you could say something to them, uh -huh. what would you tell them? How you, you know, your perspective on that? I, I really couldn't tell them much because. I, I can't see what went wrong. I, I don't know. I, I, I wouldn't know by, by, my, by me just explaining it to me. I don't know if they made a mistake with my name and, and put, put, put his name in, in the ballot instead of me or my name in the ballot instead of him. I don't know which way it would have went, you know, so I wouldn't know what to say. Okay. You know, it's just an error that I mean that they got to, you know, figure out because they the ones handling the ballots. And let me ask you, do you feel they should have explained that to you when you called Definitely. down there? Yeah, well, I I thought she would explain a little bit more to me, but it's like, but she's so sure about their system. She just told me that we don't that there's no don't worry about that. There's no problem. She said like, um, because we go by your signature and we go by your date of birth. Well, I think yeah. it'd be a problem. They didn't have a dead man vote. Right? Do you agree? I agree. Well, they lied to this son because to date it has not been fixed. The dead father remains on the qualified voters list as of yesterday. Now, Mr. Bradley Sr., who passed away in 1984, could not be reached for comment. You'd think Secretary Benson and her bureaucrats would have tacked a post-it note to the cork board in the office, remove the embarrassing dead man. <laughs> but no such thing has happened. And that's bad for all of us with another federal election around the corner. When it's all said and done, it was the sloppy way in which Benson handled the absentee voter applications that gave Donald Trump the knife to disembowel the entire electoral process and our belief in it before one single vote was even cast. Yeah. Roughly 500,000 absentee ballot applications in Michigan were returned to the Secretary of State from individuals who said that the addressee had either died or moved away, and this is according to Benson herself. 
Now, the true number of non-existent voters could be as high as 1 million since many people would have simply tossed the applications in the garbage. I sent mine back. We were all grumbling about it back then. You remember? Very well. Well, then also remember this. Benson promised then to comb through the voter rolls for ineligible people following the election. She hasn't tried hard. So far, Benson has identified a woeful 177,000 people to be removed from the rolls, and that doesn't, does not include Bradley Sr. or Susan, the woman who last lived in my home 25 years ago and now resides in Texas. Wow. Those are two people you want to make sure aren't on there. Fix it! According to one study, there are approximately 25,000 dead people still registered to vote in Michigan. And the nonpartisan Senate Fiscal Agency estimates more than 300,000 registered Michigan voters have not cast a ballot since Bush v. Gore. From Detroit to Arizona to Georgia to Wisconsin, more than 250 audits have been conducted across the country. They were conducted or commissioned by Democrats and the GOP alike. Sorry, folks. Nobody found this massive fraud that you say is out there. So what do Republicans running for governor in the Great Lake states do? They pant and bark as they jump through flaming hoops held aloft by Donald J. Trump, our national carnival barker. There goes Hollywood James Craig grasping for his lines last week as he was cornered at the Macomb County Trump rally by an East Coast whelp in a blue blazer. Let's listen. President Trump are standing here right now. Would you tell him that you would have certified Joe Biden as the winner of the 2020 election in Michigan? I don't know if I would say I would have certified because see, as you heard me tell Would the you other, have certified it? Well, I would have to understand the facts. And, and the facts are this. Uh, I guess Vince, I don't have the authority. That's not that's Sure, not but every rule. single county clerk, every board of canvassers here certified the election. Would you not take their word? Well, I would want, and I've already said, I would call hubbada, hubbada, hubbada. for a forensic <laughs> audit to understand the issue. So I'm not going to have you trying to back me in a corner. But I think that there's reason for people to be skeptical. Oh, if you were the governor in 2024 absolutely. of whether you'd certify the 2024 election, well, they're right to be skeptical? A absolutely is a reason. Look, here's what we do know factually, and I deal with facts because I've been a cop for 44 years. Right, and Donald okay. Trump lost by 145,000 votes. Okay, factually, I think three or four people got charged with fraud. So clearly, the process was not pristine. But the forensic audit is a real key. And I'm going to stand by that. I've, I call for it. I support that. And I deal with facts. I think the concern, I think the concern, the concern, if I could say, though, one more question, one more question. The concern, sir. Nobody even knows what a forensic audit is. And then there's the guru zombie Perry Johnson in his latest TV ad. I want to make sure people trust the elections. <laughs> now, Perry's an auditor in real life, but he never said anything about the elections be before he decided to get in the race, blow millions on a long shot campaign, and get on his knees for Trump's endorsement. <laughs> for her part... Governor Gretchen Whitmer vetoed two bills this month that would require the Secretary of State to begin clearing the state's rolls of inactive voters who haven't cast a ballot since the last century, even though that's Benson's job 
anyway. The idea is popular with voters across the spectrum, all of us, because it's our most sacred civic ideal. One person, one vote, but you must have a pulse. It's being held hostage in the culture wars. All you gotta do is fix it, because not only is it dangerous, it's sad, because William Bradley Sr. deserves to rest in peace. Amen. Hey, man, rest in peace, senior. Fix For, it. Forensic audit. Didn't they just make that word up when this all occurred? To I mean, what is a forensic audit for real? Like we're checking the paper stock, whether computers <laughs> filled out the, the documents, did the county, the tabulators work? It's an audit where you do it extra carefully, forensically. Now, remember, here in Michigan, Ground Zero was Cobo Hall, TCF, the yes. absent two ballots that I counted. Yeah, you work there. Yes. Right, 150,000 votes came in at 4 in the morning. The tabulation doesn't show that, right? Mm -hmm. It doesn't show it. It was like 167,000 total. You're telling me for two straight days I worked on two absentee ballots? My inside sources, who's the cousin of a friend of a cousin's friend, said, <laughs> yes, it was fraud going on. So... I, for the life of me, cannot figure out why she wants to veto this bill that would clean up the rolls. You are just throwing them another reason to question the election. Yes. It makes people, no sense. People it, dear to me, my brother, I'm at his house for his birthday, and he goes, hey, look, man, hey, man, hey, man, I know you were there, man. I, I, I know you saw what you saw, man. But what about what you didn't see? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what I didn't see. And I said, I didn't see no mice on the dark side of the moon either. <laughs> but the point is, you asked me specifically a question about those ballots. I answered it, and we keep moving along. Yeah. Yeah. The left attacked me, and the right attacked me. It's, it's, it's this. It's this. It all began during COVID, the hyper-politicized disease, yes. and they started mailing this shit, and every single one of us got a blizzard <laughs> of applications, and every single one of us did go. What the fuck? Yeah. yeah. I had at least nine of them. For, for, for me. What an easy bipartisan bill, though, yeah. to clean up the voter rolls. And, I, you know. and, you know, they're trying to... Part of this package of bills was you got to present ID at the polls. Right? Sure. There, there were, like, over five million... Ballots cast. And only 11,000 people refuse to show their ID because you don't have to. You sign the back of the card. Right. It's, an, it's not even that big of a deal. But look, I'm against that. L real simple. Last four digits of your social. Mm. It's your pin. Mm -hmm. You get one at birth. You don't have to have. Just put the last four in. Right? Yeah, you do for your taxes. Yeah. You have to do it to register to vote online. Yeah. Right. Last four. Like, it's so simple. You know what I want to do, and I think I'm going to do this, is follow up with Junior to see if he knows his dad has still not been removed from the road. They're disenfranchising that man, and not to yeah. be funny, no, that black right. man, as they're trying yes. to drive a wedge between us, you lied to him. Yeah, blatantly. And you know what? You know the factchecker.com, mm -hmm. you know, the, the one that won the Pulitzer Prize, I forget which one it is, Snopes or whatever it is. They bought that line about it's been fixed. The media, more liberal than conservative, said, yeah, it's been fixed. And, and they let it go. And I said, where'd you get that? And I never got a call back. <laughs> so the fact checker got the fact check wrong. Right, I remember, yeah. And wouldn't own up to it. You probably checked a press release. Look, look, look. 
Four digits of the Soch. He watched my story. Remember this. When you do an absentee ballot, yeah. you don't have to show ID. Right. So why, if I physically go vote, do I have to show ID? What if I forgot my ID? Yeah. It's like I'm going into 7-Eleven now and getting cigarettes and they want ID. Like, yeah. I walked here. <laughs> that's, that's very <laughs> true. Damn yeah. cigarettes. That's, that's why I bought them for you that one day. <laughs> it's actually 7-Eleven's, you know, down about a mile from my house. Yeah. Right? So when I'm out of cigarettes, I jog to 7-Eleven, buy some cigarettes and jog home. I figure it's even. <laughs> Healthiest smoker I know. <laughs> the smoking jogger. <laughs> Yeah, I would slowly shuffle on down there and take me about half a day. Yeah, so come on, like that that's a serious deal. Nobody's yeah. talking about it. It's gonna be a problem the again. The reason she didn't take those people off the ballot when she got those return return to senders is federal law says you can't remove anybody from the rolls ninety days out of an election. Okay. It's been a year and a half since that yes. election. Yeah. And, and you come nothing. you come up with seventeen percent of the estimated I ineligible voters. I mean, what else is she doing between elections? I mean, I would think you need some busy work. And there again, you go. and again, she, you've been offered to appear on the program. You were coming. You got scared. You ran away. It doesn't work because everybody out there is watching, listening. Yes. You got to answer true, regular people's questions. Me and Red know Mr. Bradley Jr., and we want his answer. Yeah. Okay, now here's time for the uplift. Dear sweet Princess Karen Dumas, who, when she really gets to it, the philosophy rolls off her like a wafting vanilla candle. <laughs> so now, for some uplift and some spiritual potpourri, Karen Dumas. If you're like me, life these days feels different. Sometimes it feels like it's caving in on you, like you have no place to go, nobody to hold on to, or nothing to hang on to. But now more than ever is the time for us to tap into whatever our spirituality may be, reach out to the people that are around you, pray for peace, and find some comfort in whatever it is that you have in your life. Things will get better. I wish I had an ETA, but until then, we just have to keep going. I wish you peace. I wish you happiness. I wish you prosperity. Okay, this show is so jam-packed. It's so right on time. Sometimes we don't have enough room for the breaking news. So last Friday, as we were on the air, news was breaking from Western Michigan that the rednecks that were plotting to kidnap Gretchen Whitmer, two were acquitted and no consensus could be reached on two more. Being that we are jam-packed, I had to take, you know, the after party to Tucker Carlson's show. <laughs> so I, you know, Tucker, move over. I need to I need to talk to my people. If you missed it, here it is. It was all a lie today. A jury, we still have those, acquitted two men on all charges in the kidnapping plot and then could not reach verdicts against the other two plot leaders. Are they going to apologize? Probably not. Charlie Duff is the host of the No BS News Hour with Charlie Duff. The last reporter in the state of Michigan, he joins us tonight. Charlie, what do you make of this? What? It's over? <laughs> oh, my God. Apparently. Right? I mean, uh, look. These guys were yakking off on Facebook like we all do. Yeah. They went overboard. The FBI gets wind of it and starts leading these guys down the path. I don't know about the rest of the media, but I said this thing stunk. Yeah. Jury reached the same verdict, man. I mean... There's a difference between mouthing off and then the feds walking you into a case. And it's really important, brother. And everybody, wake up at home. Google this. The lead FBI agent was fired 
after he beat his wife because she wouldn't throw down at a swingers party. That, this, what is this? It's yeah. ridiculous. Well, it is ridiculous. And BuzzFeed, again, and never compliment BuzzFeed, but they did the reporting. The majority yeah, of awesome. the conspirators, they were awesome in this. They really were. The majority of conspirators working for the FBI? What? Like, how yeah, is that, how is that allowed? Look, man, it goes like this, right? There, there has to be some overt action when you're conspiring to kidnap. And the overt action was they were all out in front of her vacation home, but the driver was FBI and the guy that had the dynamite was FBI. And look, <laughs> look, I'm glad it's not just me and it's not just you. It's a jury of our fellow citizens, right? Right. Not yes. guilty. And of course... OJ's not guilty either. I, you got to stand by it. Move on. Whitmer has about a dozen hero campaign commercials to cancel. That's really what this is all about. The system worked again. Wait, it, really quick. She's running campaign spots telling you she survived a plot? Not yet, but you just played them before I got on and you didn't think those things were ready? <laughs> Of course they were going to do it. This is the lamest race in the country. And, like, look, everybody stick together. You know what? The the lead guy on this, he's going to be retried. He was living in the basement of a vacuum repair shop. That's my cousin, right? He doesn't have a (laughs) boat to take you over Lake Michigan to go to Wisconsin to lock you in a barn to hold you uh, on trial and then sentence you to five years in a dog kennel. Seriously. (laughs) I don't know what that means, but I'm with you, man. That was the plan. That was the plan, dude. (laughs) That that was the plan. (laughs) So great. Thank you for reporting the news. Charlie the Duff. (laughs) Well, now, very happy once again to have back on the program Andy Arena, the former chief of terrorism operations for the entire FBI and the former head honky in charge of the FBI's Detroit field office. <laughs> Andy, welcome. Charlie is off with Tucker Carlson. I never thought I'd see it, but uh. <laughs> <laughs> well, so sometimes I'll go on that thing. You know, I mean, I used to do CNN, but I don't know what happened to everybody. Everybody, what do you make of this, Andy? As look, did the FBI overreach here? Did they? Did you think the jury looked at this as entrapment? Well, I, I think that 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 is the conclusion that the the uh, jury came to, Charlie. I mean, I think there's just a lot of different aspects to this case. Um, you know, I, you know, Charlie, I teach law school, uh, I, and actually, my students uh, we've been talking about this the last few the last few class, it's terrorism class, and so we've been talking about you know the First Amendment and. and you know, there's not a clear black line between uh, First Amendment protected free speech and, and acts of terrorism, right? Or, you know, so what really, what, it's a gray area, right? And so when do you step over that line? And it's certainly, you know, I think what this case shows is that that, that it's an even grayer area than we thought, right? So with the last two domestic terrorism cases we've had here in the state of Michigan have both kind of resulted uh uh, come to the same conclusion. So, you know, for, for the FBI, for the Department of Justice, you got to step back and say, okay, you know, how, how, how are we doing these cases? Uh, how do we do them differently in the, in the future? You know, I think it starts I, off with, with with who you assign to it. Uh, Andy, think, right, right quick, you spoke on that. I want to ask you this, which I've always wondered. If this would have been anybody else that they were plotting against, other than governor or potential governor, would you guys even pursue something like this? Yes. Okay, here's a question. 
Yes. Um, why didn't the FBI, once they saw these guys yakking online, just go knock on the door and go, you know, uh, hi, FBI. Uh, yeah, we're watching you, so uh, stop it. Watch your ass. Well, Charlie, that's one possibility, right? And I think, and obviously, I'm not in the room. I'm not uh, managing this case, so you know the decisions that were made. I, I certainly can't can't uh, uh, comment on those, but uh, that is one possibility. I think what you have to assess is how how serious you take the threat, right? So obviously, they took this as a very serious threat. Um, you're looking at, you know, the wherewithal to do it. Do they have weapons? Do, uh, do they have the means? Do they have the, the uh, you know, the political uh, fire in the belly, so to say, to, to pull this off? And so I think that obviously the assessment must have been that, yeah, these guys are, are the real deal. So uh, that's I think that's why the decision was made to go forward. Now, you know, I think the second question is always, you know, how far do you, if you're going to do this, right? If you're going to follow this plot, I mean, how how far do you let it go? Uh, at what point do you possibly lose control and, and, and these guys go do it? Or how much involved, uh, do you get, uh, uh, you know, get involved? But to that point, I mean, it seems that there's the perception that this was all done politically uh, because it seemed to be rushed. If you have people that are informants that are with the group, why not wait? Because the perception is they wanted to get it done in an election year. Could be. Like I said, I couldn't. I couldn't speak to that. Um, but but you know that could that could be a possibility. Well, well let's ask the queen of the political scene, Karen. Do you, do, looking at uh, it now, do you think that there was a political component to all this? Well, Charlie, in a in a in, with politics, there's always a political component. But my thing is this: is that the severity of it is out compromise because two of the guys were acquitted, and there's no decision on the other two. So, if this were as serious, if it were as legitimate uh, and and as dangerous as it was presented, to me, it would have been cut and dry. I mean, if if I don't know. It just to me, it makes it look all even the more politically driven uh, and just for show than than ever before. So, Andy, think about that. Two guys may be retried. So, what did you do? Let me put this in perspective now. Two guys uh, that were acquitted were not actually doing the overt scoping of Whitmer's vacation home. One guy was back at the motel getting loaded on cheap beer and Jägermeister. The other guy was smoking weed. The other two guys that were in the car were being driven by an FBI informant. And the guy that supposedly had the dynamite to blow up the bridge was an FBI agent. Would you, would you bring, retry these guys considering how that sounds? Well, you know, Charlie... That, that's going to be a really tough decision for the U.S. attorney out in the Western District. Right? Would you do it? Wait a minute. Make some news, Andy. Would would you, yes or no, would you recommend that they retry these two guys? Dig deep, bro. Dig deep. I know what you're doing here. You're like, fuck, I'm going to be a headline if I say the wrong thing. And that's what I want you to do. Would you bring the charges? You've known me a long time. I don't, you know, I don't give a crap about that. Okay. I mean, I. I'm not going to make a comment one way or the other unless I'm sitting down and looking at all the evidence and really pouring through it. Right. Yeah. Uh, I've sat in those rooms and I've, you know, I've had to make those decisions on what to do. And believe me, it's not an easy decision. You got to look at, you got to look at, uh, at everything. So, you know, I've sat there with Barb McQuaid and, 
uh, and other U.S. attorneys. And, you know, like I say, it's it, it's a lot of thought. I mean, it's not it's not a, a off the cuff decision. Is that a yes or no? It's uh, it's I couldn't tell you, Charlie. I couldn't tell you. Andy, uh, from the FBI perspective, will this be some kind of reckoning? Are they a little overzealous in using informants? I mean, we all think of this case. We think of the Hutari case. Um, you know, these people like to scream entrapment. Are they a little overzealous with informants? Is there a better way to do it? Uh, if there's a better way, tell me. Uh, you know, here's the thing about informants. I, and I actually developed many, many years ago. This was in the... Kind of in uh, the light of the uh, the Whitey Bulger case out of Boston, um, I actually was the first agent to go up there and, and kind of do the initial review and discovery. You know, we got a problem, right? How 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 the informants are being used. So I developed an informant development, informant handling program for the FBI. Um, you know, the, the the bottom line, guys, is this: um, you know, bad guys, uh, the, the mafia in New York is not dealing with the Archbishop of New York, right? They're, they're not dealing with the Cardinal. They're dealing with other bad guys. So you got to be very careful getting in bed with these guys because they definitely got fleas, right? So uh, controlling them is is certainly a, a, an iffy proposition. So um, it, it's it's not an easy situation, but that's who you're going to end up dealing with to sometimes get the bad guys is use other bad guys. Now, so, it's, this is important to be said, too. The FBI agents I know are like the real deal. They work hard. They're legitimate. They're upright. Their their motivations proper. They do things by the book. I know them. You know them. Like anything, like in the police department or journalism, whatever. You have some kooks. You have a few bad apples. These things do happen, and when they happen, they're they're politicized. You know what I mean? Right. This whole thing is weird to me. Because as you look at the far, the liberals, mm -hmm. the liberals used to support or used to be against this kind of shit, like Cointelpro, the Black Panthers, the American Indian movement. Now, when it's a bunch of right-wing rednecks, yeah. they're all for it. So I, you can't win as an FBI agent in today's America. I want to ask Andy this right quick. When you're using an informant, do you think they're more motivated to make that case so that they can get whatever they're getting as a benefit of an informant, which can lead to entrapment? Well, it, that's a good question. Informants hey, are... ding, ding. No, no two informants are exactly the, the, the same, right? They're, they're, and part of what their motivation or what their motivation is uh, is really key to, uh, to, uh, to how you handle them. Right. So, um, listen, I, I handle, well, I, you know, I'm not, I'm not tooting my own horn, but I was always very good at, at, at handling, developing and handling the sources. Right. It's, it's, it's a tricky proposition. Uh, you got to keep a real tight rein on them. You still, there's never a hundred percent guarantee, right. But you got to do everything you can to make sure that, that you keep them on the straight and narrow. But, you know, what their motivation is, I certainly do, does play into it, right? Uh, one of the things I, I'm going to tell you right up front, guys, I never paid performance, maybe, maybe for, uh, not out for their services, right? Maybe if they had to travel or, you know, things like that. But I didn't, I didn't like to pay informants, right? Because my belief was they were going to, they were going to start to uh, make things right. up, right? <laughs> right. And you things to get paid so i never um you know but the same thing with if they're working on we call up working off a nut right if they if they've got a situation that they're trying to clear up um you know how's that motivation going to play into how they they act as a source right um 
the biggest thing is you don't want them manufacturing the situation. And it's a tricky situation, but, you know, as a handling agent, you got to be on top of it. You really got to put the effort in uh, to make sure that the best of your ability that they're not manufacturing or, or, or you know, pushing the, the scenario to a certain area. Andy, when you were uh, with the FBI, did you ever feel or see any kind of political pressure either from within the Department of Justice or just from the outside saying, you need to push this, you need to do this a little faster, a little harder? Did yes. you ever experience that? Yes. Charlie did? Yes. You know what? Yes. Yeah. yeah. There were a couple situations, but, um, you know, Bill Clinton, I can remember when I was at FBI, of course, the first time Clinton was trying to get certain files and and then Director Louis Free basically said, no way. It, it ain't happening. Um, during the Iraq war, uh, there was some political pressure from the White House uh, uh, to, to, to do or say certain things. Director Mueller at the time said, no way. So, you know, my situation, to answer your question, did I see it yet? Did the FBI uh, respond um, appropriately? Yeah, we're not doing it. Now, I can't say that goes out today or, or since I've left, but that was my experience. Now, uh, I, I know you got to go, Andy, because you have to do lesser media this morning. <laughs> and, uh, you know what I mean? For that lesser media, eat your heart out. There it was. Andy Arena, let me just r go down the list here. Like, underwear bomber, John Gotti, Congressman Trafficant, Kwame Kilpatrick, uh, the Flintwater investigation. By the way, before I let you go, Andy, Kwame Kilpatrick is now out. My sources saw him at the casino the other night. Doesn't he got like a million dollars in restitution to be paying? He's trying to get it from the casino. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Andy. Thanks, brother. Have a spectacular Easter. All right. Andy, take care. Andy Arena, ladies and gentlemen. Guys, guys, guys for real. Man, I need to hit it big. You see the price of meat now? Chicken is what pork used to cost. Pork costs what beef used to cost. And shit, beef is just a poor man's dream. <laughs> and we're all getting poor because it's just your money sitting in the bank. If it was just sitting in the bank, it's 8.5% less. Oh, yeah. Inflation. Inflation is eating the world up. As I said at the top of the program, the dollar just doesn't get you any beef. Oh. There's a, a war in Europe, man. The beef's going to be scarce. The ruble is it back to its pre-war levels. You know why? Because the Germans, the culture of convenient abstentionists, the moralizers, can't give up their gas. It's <laughs> <laughs> like Germany. They can't give, give up their heating stuff. <laughs> What's that? Drew up there yelling? He's pissed. <laughs> He's mad at all too. <laughs> He's looking yeah. at his bank statement. Oh, Dolph. He's starting to barbecue the dog up there. <laughs> oh, that's right. Yeah, doggy tendon. <laughs> I mean, for God's sakes, awful. you know, for God's sakes, what is the value of a penny anymore? That's what I was thinking. Eight and a half pennies less on your dollar. It's really going to hit the poor man who doesn't have savings. It's going to hurt. So... We conducted this, you know, last summer, yeah, last fall. Uh, you know, what's, what's it take to bend over and actually lift up a penny these days? <laughs> Thought just for the Easter holiday we'd revisit that. Now that we're actually thinking about our pennies. We got that? Yep. Let's roll it. So we're in downtown Detroit, Comeback City. High noon, lunchtime. Not really a lot of people, but I know the economy's got you down. What's inflation doing? What happens when the government checks run out at the end of the month? 
What is even the value of a penny? Do you notice you go to the gas station and everybody leaves them there? How are you? So what does it take in America to actually bend over and work for a living? Do we have work ethic? Would it take one penny to get you to bend over? Let's find out. Here we go. There they go. Well, not one penny. Of course, inflation's at a 20-year high, so why don't we make it 10? 10 pennies. This was before the Nothing. war, remember. There's 10 pennies laying there, gentlemen. You anybody want to stop and get that? No takers. How about 60 cents? He's walking right over it. It's a disrespect to the USA, just walking all over money. <laughs> Looks like we're gonna have to up the ante. How about 200? Times are good for you. Oh yeah, thank you, appreciate that. You getting that uh, that Biden that, bucks? That, or? that RKT money over here. Oh, that RKT, you're yeah. back, you're working. Oh yeah, we're back working, baby. Yeah, no, no wonder, nobody, nobody got the time to pick up 200 pennies. Oh man, that's crazy. <laughs> You don't need it. I don't, I don't need it. I don't need a penny. Oh, hell, he don't need hey, it. Every little bit helps. Well, then go ahead. Help yourself. <laughs> I'm good. Yeah, he not know. Damn. That lady just stepped around those things like they were kryptonite. <laughs> Certainly the man knows the value of a penny. I think you just got your answer. He does know the value of a penny. Nobody wants a penny. <laughs> Remember, one penny times a hundred is a dollar. How about 500? That should do it. Here's two hard-working ladies. Got a double look. Look at that. Somebody dropped five bucks. Here's a nice couple looking to start out, young love. He's looking around. Maybe he's Googling what those are. You know how kids are, it's all digital now. Oh, the youth of today. No work ethic. Oh, look at here. Oh, oh, maybe. He's looking around. He's thinking about it. Do you feel like people are embarrassed to actually bend over and take some free money? I'll tell you what, not if Uncle Sam's sending it to you in a check. Go ahead. If you want those, you can have them. Well, they don't make enough sense. A freaking comedian out here. That don't make enough sense. Look at here, I got five dollars and pennies and nobody wants them. Do you think maybe people don't want to bend over and work for their money? <laughs> well, lunch hour's getting on and I'm sweating. Nobody wants 500 pennies, not even one of them. So I'm gonna up to Annie here. Two. Two thousand. Pennies. 20 bucks. I'm going to stack them up nice and neat. Make it real easy. 20 freaking dollars. That'll get you a 12-pack of good beer. A case of bad beer. Nowadays, three gallons of gas. That'll get you two packs of cigarettes and a tall boy for the kid's future. Oh, he's marveling at it. He marvels at it. One hey, hey, get get the rest of it. It's a fucking tourist attraction. Pick it up, America. Do some work. 
I'd rather just give it to you than give it to Uncle Sam. Divide it up with some bureaucrats, some crappy contracts, bad schools. I'd rather just put it in your pocket if you'd only bend over. You're used to leftovers and trash and shit laying on the sidewalk? Yes, sir. Because you're a sanitation man? Yes, sir. How come nobody will pick up $25 in free money? Because it's a penny. They don't know how, how much is a penny worth. Yeah, but when you put like 2,500 together. You got money. That's a goddamn crate of beer. Yes, sir, it is. Ain't nobody want to do the work, do they? Yes, sir. Nobody want to work in this country. Oh, look at uh, here. Oh, oh, <laughs> maybe. He's looking around. He's thinking about it. I'm not above getting these pennies. I get them all. You know how much is there? Uh, I say about six, seven dollars. Thirty dollars. Thirty dollars. You know, you're the only man to stop really? and pick this up. But he's got a titanium hip and he can't bend over. I put down 3,000 pennies and everybody just walked right by. Yep. Can you believe that? All day. All day. That'd be $30. Yeah. Yeah, amazing, right? Doesn't that tell you something about how people are looking at the value of money? Well, if they saw the pennies. Oh, they saw them? Yeah. Well, there you have it. The only man that stopped is the man that understands the value of a penny. But what did we learn here today? There's money there Amen. if you'll only look for it. <laughs> and when you find it, there's no other way to get it but to work for it. Or ask some other guys to work for it for you. That's called the boss. That's compliments of American Coney Island and the No Bullshit News Hour. How are you? Yes, I am. Here comes Peter Cottontail, hopping down the bunny trail. Hippity hoppity Easter's on its way. Bringing every girl and boy baskets full of Easter joy, things to make your Easter bright and gay. <laughs> Happy Easter. Happy Easter. See ya.